So, again, we're going to cover everything you could ever possibly want to know about prophecy in one class. Okay. Um, what I want to do is I want to cover a few different things. The first thing I want to do is to make a very important distinction about prophecy. Okay. Which is a threefold distinction. We're going to divide prophecy into three different categories. How many categories? Three. Four. You're not helping. Sorry. How many categories? Three. Three, okay. The first category is prophecy for the prophet. In other words, there's a person who is having a prophecy. What does prophecy mean for the person who is experiencing the prophecy? Okay. The second thing is prophecy as a mitzvah, as a commandment, because we are commanded in the Torah to obey a prophet. Okay. And the third thing is prophecy as a phenomenon. Prophecy is something that occurs. Okay. So explain to you what it. The first category is not really so relevant to us because we're not prophets. And if you are a prophet, see me privately. I have a good psychiatrist for you. Now, um, but so there's a question like, what is prophecy to the, uh, in a first person account of like, what is, it, what is happening to them when they're experiencing prophecy? What is that about? That's one question. Then there's a separate set of questions, which is I, as a religious Jew, believe that I'm commanded by God to obey a prophet when a prophet tells me to do something on the basis of his prophetic experience or her prophetic experience. So how am I supposed to relate to that commandment? How am I supposed to apply that, right? Should every person who walks up in a loincloth and a staff with crazy look in their eyes and says they're a prophet, I should listen to them. That's no. You did not. You did come with a stick and no one really knew what to say. Well, we're going to maybe get to that. Okay. But crazy loincloth people probably should not be listened to. Um, right. Yes. In a sense, there are many people who will claim to be prophets. They are almost undoubtedly not. Okay. And then the last thing is a general question. What does the phenomenon of prophecy mean about the nature of reality? In other words, as, a, as, a, as just a, the fact that prophecy exists as something, what does that say about reality itself? Nothing to do with, I'm experiencing prophecy, I haven't met a prophet, but absent the actual prophet themselves, the fact that this occurs, what does that say about God, man, reality, all that kind of stuff? Make sense? These are three different questions and we're going to cover all these questions in one class. Which means we're going to try and get at the core of the issues rather than get bogged down by the nuances. Now, there are many, many views in Judaism about prophecy. Okay? And I want to start with the first issue about what prophecy is for the prophet. Um, I'm sure everyone here has tasted chocolate in their life. Okay. No? Is someone here not tasted chocolate? Okay. Now... Could you describe what chocolate tastes like to someone who has never tasted chocolate? Not really. Not really. You could try. You could try, right? And you, but you, you see the problem, right? There's, there's, there's a fundamental problem about describing a unique experience to someone who has not had it. So, well, I'm sure that if you got a bunch of prophets together and they discussed their experiences, they would understand what they were referring to. When prophets try to describe what is happening to them, to non-prophets... What is obviously going to take place is there's going to be miscommunication. 
right? And so now people who are incredibly wise and knowledgeable might be able to make sense of that and maybe the prophets themselves. But the best we're going to have is a very rough and somewhat flawed understanding of what's going on to the prophet because we haven't experienced it ourselves. Does that make sense? There are, for the prophet, two basic kinds of prophecy. And I want to just make a note here. The question about Moshe Rabbeinu specifically and his prophetic experiences is, is treated somewhat separately than the prophecy in general. And so I'm not going to be talking about Moshe particularly. Um, we'll talk a little bit more maybe about, the, that, about that, maybe touch on that. We talk about Torah as a distinct concept. I'm not sure. So I'm saying that as prophets generally. Moshe is a bit different. There are two kinds of prophecies. And in order to understand that, let's just give a basic definition of prophecy. Remember what I said about definitions yesterday? Okay. So it's supposed to include everything that is prophecy and exclude everything that is? No. Okay. Okay. Prophecy is knowledge that is granted by God. So, first off, if it's not knowledge, it's not. Okay? And if it, that knowledge is gained by some other means than being granted by God, it's not. Prophecy. Prophecy. So, to make this simple, I want to talk about the other ways in which we know knowledge that are not going to be considered being granted by God. Okay? Even though we understand God is ultimately causally involved in everything, to be clear, I want to talk about the other ways we know knowledge very briefly so we know what we're excluding. Now, these are going to be all the ways we know, again, unless you're a prophet... We're just going to cover all the ways we know things. So one way is that we have sense perception. It's called empirical knowledge. I see things, I touch things, I taste things. Um, I can feel, you know, my blood running in the wrong direction when I'm hanging upside down, right? We have experiences of the reality, empirical knowledge. That's one way we know things. Is empirical knowledge prophecy? No. No. Another way we know things is that we use our capacity for reason to think, introspect, reflect, and we arrive at different things, right? We have different understandings of things that way, such as how do we come up with mathematical ideas? We don't go out in the world and look for them like we look for rocks and trees, right? Somebody sits down in a room or stands or paces or whatever, and they come up with something, okay? That's called rational knowledge, okay? Does that make sense? Okay. Then there is another kind of knowledge and this is knowledge that I have indirectly. So those are what we call direct knowledge. I know it because I saw it. I know it because I thought about it. And it makes a kind of sense. Uh, another kind of knowledge I could have is that someone else tells me something and I believe them. In fact, a lot of our knowledge is that, right? Most of what I know about the world, somebody told me or someone wrote in a book and I believe that they're telling me the truth. So that's a different kind of knowledge. Okay? The last kind of knowledge is what we're going to call cultural knowledge. Okay. Cultural knowledge is knowledge that we pick up because we're social beings and we pick up a sense of things because of how society works. Nobody actually told us this. Okay. Um, for instance, um, most people's sense that certain things are... Um, they, they look good or they look weird... Right? Well, that, that's a weird looking thing. That's, or, and maybe it goes far as to say it's even beauty and ugliness, although that's debatable. 
has a lot to do with the society in which they're raised, right? Um, if you were to see somebody dressed in entirely different attire, engage entirely different customs and practices about how to conduct a conversation from a culture that you're not used to, you would be like, this is very weird, this is wrong, right? And yet, in your own culture, it seems normal. So there's a kind of sense of what ought to be a sense of normalcy that we get from just living in a culture. That's a different kind of a knowledge as well. Now, what I want to just say very quickly, I don't really care whether you're right or wrong. When you, so if I claim to know something and I happen to be wrong or right, that's beside the point for our purpose. I'm just talking about ways we come to know whether we end up being misled or not. So I can know that there's something because I went out in the world and experienced it, interacted with it, empirical knowledge. I can know about something because I spent time thinking and it makes a kind of a sense to me, rational knowledge. I can know something because somebody who I consider to be reliable passed that information along to me, right? So that's knowledge I gained by trusting other people. And there's knowledge that I've gained from simply absorbing modes and approaches to things from my culture. That's it. That, that we don't know we don't know things in any other way. Is, um, is cultural knowledge indirect knowledge? It's part of that? It depends on how what you think of the content of, of, of it is. I, I don't want to go into it right now. It's an interesting question. Cultural knowledge is very interesting how that works. There's four though? There's four. Oh. Yeah. The, the key thing that's important to understand is that when you're trusting another person, you have to have reasons for trusting them. You have to feel like that person is trustworthy. Whereas cultural knowledge almost happens without you realizing it. It's a, kind of a subliminal way of not coming to know things. That makes sense? Okay. So if a prophet knows something, whether the prophet knows that I'm supposed to put on tzitzis or that we should go to war or that we should build a building, right? Whatever the prophet knows, they don't know it because they went out in the world and saw it. They don't know it because they thought about it makes sense to them. They don't know it because someone told them. They, they keep that in mind. Does a prophet know because someone told them? No. If that someone is God, does that change anything? Also no. So although we use the metaphor of God speaking to them, that's a metaphor. That is not, it's not like, by the way, if you're ever worried that maybe you have prophecy because you hear voices, it's not prophecy. That's not how prophecy works. Because when someone else tells me something and I trust them, that is a normal human way of knowing something. That's not prophecy. Um, and it's not cultural knowledge. So what is it? And the answer to that is, remember yesterday's class? I have no idea. No idea. I've never experienced prophecy. I feel like you can imagine. You can't, actually. It's not empirical? It's not empirical. You can't. The, the, the Jewish gods, they discuss, they give the analogy, like I, the analogy of, of colors in a blind person. Who, for someone who's blind from birth. And it explains to them what red is. Right. It, yeah. So there won't be a prophecy in current like, times. Can't you imagine it like a dream? No, no. Now, there are elements of prophecy, which I'm going to come to in a second. There are elements of prophecy which we can describe, okay? Now, remember I said there's two kinds of prophecy? Okay. There's two kinds of knowledge that people have. There is knowledge that is um, what I'm going to call knowledge of what. I know what. And there's knowledge of how. So for instance, when I say, I know how to ride a bike, right? That's very different than, I, than saying I know what a bicycle is, right? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, knowledge of what, you can then apply things like understanding and explanation, right? 
and knowledge of how you can't really, you can just act on the knowledge. That's it. Does that make sense? Now, you can then abstract. I mean, you do this. Like someone rides a bicycle, someone else looks and observes and says, hey, I can now explain how that works, right? But what they're doing is they're conceptualizing and they start becoming a scientist. And what's very interesting is you could have a knowledge of what without the knowledge of the how, a knowledge of the how without the knowledge of the what. I do not drive. Uh, and I just never learned how to do so. Um, one time when I was a teenager, I'm in the car with my brother and my father. There was a snowstorm in Minnesota um, and driving in snowstorms. It was actually after the snow. It was a very, driving in, with a lot of snow is a difficult thing to do. And my brother and I are having a conversation about driving in the snow. And I'm discussing from the perspective of things like friction and conservation of momentum. And he's describing how you, you know, use the steering wheel and the brakes. So what's happening is we're describing the same thing, but I'm conceptualizing what it is. And he's talking about what things you actually do. Right, so there's this two kind. Of, so there is an interplay between these things, but these are different kinds of knowledge. Good. Which kind of knowledge is prophecy? Neither. Both. Okay. <laughs> knowledge is always. Oh, sorry. Prophecy is always, always, always. Knowledge of how. It may also be a knowledge of what. That would be a higher level of prophecy. In other words, if a Prophet has a prophecy. He knows how to do something. Now, when I say know how to do something, not just a knowing of, 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 of there's, also, there's also, for instance, let me, let me, let me explain. There's a, there's a knowing how to do something in like a practical sense, like how to ride a bicycle. But let's say, for instance, um, part, of, part of that knowing how to do something is also a sense of like how important it is to do that thing. Okay, for instance, if I, if I were to say, I know how to parent children, and you say, well, if you know how to parent children, then why are you neglecting your children? I would actually say that someone who neglects their children doesn't really know how to parent children because I think part of knowing how to parent children is kind of a sense of the weight to put on each act. Because right? all the time we have things coming in conflict, right? Do I watch television or do I change the diaper? Right? If I don't have any sense that one act should displace the other act, then I don't really know how to parent children. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's not just knowing how to move my body. It's also knowing which things displace which things. So there's also kind of a, a what I should do. Not necessarily a conscious sense, right? That I can like necessarily explain it to somebody else or even explain it to myself. Um, but it, but it, there's a, this knowing what action to take in what circumstances and it actually drives the person to do that as well. So every time some prophet has a prophetic encounter, the prophet comes away with knowing what they or someone else should do and in some sense of how they should go about doing it. But does that necessarily mean they walk away with a new understanding about, about what is going on or what the nature of reality is? No. So I'm going to give you one of the examples of prophecy in the Tanakh, which is a very low level of prophecy which is the prophecy of Shimshon, Samson. Has anyone heard the story of Samson? Okay. What did Samson's prophecy look like? Because it says very clearly, the spirit of God comes over him, and then what happens? Anyone know? He kills people. That's it. That's the extent of his prophecy. The Jewish people were being persecuted by the Philistines, the Plishtim, and the spirit of Hashem would come over him, and what would happen? He would have a sense of that he should, and how to do what? 
to kill the pushta. That's it. And then what would happen? The spirit would leave and he would go back to being, you know, just a person. Maybe a wise person, maybe a saintly person, but a person. Is there a why? What? Was he told, like, why to kill? I mean, there's a basic context. They were being per- the Jews were being persecuted by the, by the Philistines. It was about saving the Jewish people. But he, wasn't, he didn't walk away with, like, some sense of, like, now I have some deep truth about the universe. Okay? And now... In traditional sources, we often, to avoid confusion, we don't call, we call this by a different name, although, again, each source and each thing you read, you would have to, like, pay attention to how the author is using the words. But often we use this, often we use a term called Ruach HaKodesh, or Holy Spirit. And so what, what happens when a person has that kind of a encounter with God is God gives them a sense, this is how to proceed. This is how to proceed in life. Okay? I'm going to give you a, a, a story. Um, this is a this is a famous I don't know, famous this is a, this is a story that, that, that somewhat famous and, and there was a man a Jew named uh, Ariel Sharon has anyone heard of Ariel Sharon he used to be the prime minister of Israel but previously he'd been a general and defense minister so he was visiting New York and um, the um, he went to have a meeting with the Rebbe and the Rebbe told him, I mean, that's the exact nature of the conversation is irrelevant, but the Rebbe told him that he should really stay um, in New York and not fly back to Israel when he was planning on flying back to Israel. And Ariel Sharon just thought the Rebbe was being polite, and in the end he was convinced to, the Rebbe said he should probably listen, and so he stayed, and the plane that Ariel Sharon was supposed to be on was hijacked by terrorists. So you can imagine all of the Lubavitchers going around saying the Rebbe's a prophet and the Rebbe knew and blah, 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 right? And... Um, this was, this, so there was a, I forgot who it was, but he was interviewed. The head, I think, of, of the National Synagogue Youth. I don't remember. One of these like, big uh, Orthodox organizations in Israel used to meet with the rabbi on quite a frequent basis about affairs of Jewry in America. So after, after their meeting, he said, can I ask the rabbi a question? And he said, sure, ask me a question, whatever you want to. He says, people are saying you had like, prophetic knowledge that this plane was going to be hijacked. And that's why he told Ariel Sharon to stay. Um, and the Rebbe's response was, I had no idea about the plane. But when he told me he was leaving, and I'm not, this is already secondhand, so the wording is not precise, but the message is, I knew he shouldn't leave. I knew he shouldn't be on the plane. That's all. I, I just knew that he, that he should stay. That's it. Why he should stay? What was going to happen? God didn't tell me what's going on. Right? And this idea is an idea that we find is attributed to many different things. When we say, for instance, the way that many of our holy texts were comprised is not necessarily that the prophet had some sort of a knowledge of what to write. They felt inspired to write something for whatever reasons, and God gave them the knowledge of which wording to use. So there's a not so there's in other words, you can think of that this entire prophecy is not really an experience of encountering God. This person knows what to do going forward, knows how to approach life, either for themselves or others going forward, without having any ability to explain. Why? Now, does that mean every time that I feel like that, that means I'm having prophecy? No. No, it doesn't mean that. A higher level of prophecy, though, is where the prophet actually walks away with knowledge in the sense there's something for him to understand. Something that he could, some, some, some idea. And when that prophecy occurs, that kind of prophecy occurs, the prophet has, has a I'm going to present it as a choice, but it's not really a choice. The, prophecy, the prophet can either be aware of the prophecy or aware of the world, but not both. Which means, 
when the prophet is being aware of this knowledge, like if I'm telling you something, you can hear what I'm saying, understand it. At the same time, like also be aware that you're in this room, there's other people, right? you can be aware of multiple things at once. If God is giving the prophet knowledge that the prophet is consciously experiencing, oh, this is what the truth is, that kind of a, that kind of a knowledge they're getting, then while they're having that experience, they cannot be aware of reality, which means they cannot see, they cannot hear. They can't even control their body. Which means that when they have that prophetic experience, either one of two things occurs. Either they must be asleep, or they go into some sort of kind of convulsion. It's not possible for a person to have a prophecy where they are aware of what this truth is, and at the same time, they're aware of the world, their body, or anything else. Okay? So, for instance, there was Elijah the prophet, Eliyahu Navi, he would go prophesize in front of King Ahab, Ahab. When he went into the king's throne room and he actually had prophecy in his presence, what happened? What? He started convulsing and tearing off his clothes and shaking and just looked like an absolutely crazy person. Because the... The idea is that the mind, the consciousness of the prophet cannot simultaneously be aware of their embodied reality in the world around them and be aware of that kind of experience. Now, the lower level of prophecy, which we call um, Ruach HaKodesh usually, Holy Spirit, where they just have a sense of how to proceed forward in life, that does not require that kind of weird thing. Okay? So in one kind of prophecy, all the prophecy is le- left with a sense of how to proceed forward in life. And in a deeper prophecy, they have that plus some actual conscious awareness of some truth that can then be understood and maybe even explained and communicated to other people. If he's having a prophecy of what, is he not necessarily having a prophecy of how? No, there's always how. There's always because, because everything, because, because and we'll talk about this in a moment, everything, uh, everything that's true has an imperative, has a push. There's nothing that's passive. So for instance, if the prophet has a sense that such and such is wrong, he has a sense that he needs to prevent it. If it's a prophecy that such and such is right, he has a sense that he needs to do something to make it happen. There's no, the prophet's never left with just a sense of, oh, that's interesting, and then that's it. Because, because, because from a Jewish perspective, there's nothing, nothing true is ever like that. So the, the element that the prophet always has is a sense of how to proceed forward in life. What action do I need to take or not take? What influence on another person do I need to have or not need to have? But what really underlies that, they may or may not be aware of. And if they're becoming aware of that requires the prophet to go into a kind of state where they can't be aware of reality, even their own body. Um, there's a very famous story um, in the Chumash um, about Aaron's, uh, uh, Moshe's brother and sister having prophets in the middle of being um, together with their spouses and the trauma that they experienced. Um, because you can imagine being together with your spouse in an intimate manner and all of a sudden your consciousness flips to something <laughs> so lofty that you can't even maintain any awareness that you have a body. Right? That kind of shift is extremely traumatic. It was trauma for them because, the, because like, it, 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 jar, it was extremely jarring. And, yeah. I really choose this as moments. Well, he did that to teach them a lesson, actually. Really? What yeah. was it? That they're not like Moshe. Because oh. Moshe didn't have these problems. 
Moshe's prophecy was... It was the opposite. Moshe separated his wife because he wasn't... Moshe's, Moshe was only conscious of prophecy and still functioned in the world. And so it wasn't really... He couldn't be... Moshe's was a whole different thing. Moshe's the exception. It's very exceptional. And they, they didn't realize that. They said, like, like, you're not like Moshe. Okay. Now, there is no rule that prophecy can't exist nowadays. There's no such rule. Um, it's obviously very rare. And obviously the notion of the Ruach HaKodesh, that lower mode of prophecy, is not as, is more going to be more frequent and more commonly accepted as occurring than that higher form of prophecy, which is called Nevuah in Hebrew. Um, but, so, now, when that occurs, when the prophet is having that Nevuah form, when they have a sense of what, that comes together with imagery. Their consciousness is flooded with pictures, um, imaginative things that help represent the truth that God is giving them a sense of. So the prophet can describe what he heard or what he saw in the vision, but that's not the prophecy. And just to give you an example, um, if someone is explaining something to you, as they're explaining to you, do many people, not all people, many people have pictures pop up in their mind or maybe some kind of like a visual representation of charting these things out, right? Now you realize that those are not what's being told to you, right? Those are just a, what the mind does to help hold on to it. So the prophet, that's how anything is the prophet. So a prophet can describe the vision, the image, but that's not the prophecy. And so if the prophet describes God speaking to them, they heard a voice, but the voice is not the prophecy. The voice is a product of their imagination to help them hold on to this knowledge just flooding into their consciousness. It's a very, so therefore, if you, all you do is hear a voice, that's not a prophecy, any more than seeing a picture is understanding something. Okay. What's happening is that the prophet's mind is being flooded by a knowledge of something just directly. It just, now they know what it is. And that case, that completely takes over their ability to be aware of anything else. And what the mind does to deal with that is it produces, using imagination, something to help symbolically represent that, such as hearing a sound or seeing a picture or something like that, but those are not really the prophecy. Okay? So I don't know what prophecy is like, I've never experienced it, but that's a brief description about what is happening and to the prophet when they're having prophecy in these kind of two levels of it, yes? So first off, it's not really an experience in the normal sense. Um, but the thing is, very often we ask questions, and I, I don't mean this as a criticism of you particularly, I think it's a general thing that we all do. We very often ask questions without thinking, is that the right question? What I mean to say is like this. In what situation would I ever need to figure out whether what I'm experiencing is Ruach HaKodesh? Like, in what situation would I ever need to figure out that I'm feeling, I have a sense of this is how I'm supposed to do this, this is imperative, would I ever need to figure out whether or not that is in fact Ruach HaKodesh? And let me explain to you what I mean. Let me explain to you what I mean. If the, if 
if what I sense, I'm gonna give you two, two, two aspects. If what I sense as this is what I need to do going forward, to me, seems entirely implausible and unreasonable, well, that's clearly not Rocha Kodesh, right? Conversely, if it seems entirely plausible and reasonable, well, I'm gonna do it anyway, right? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, like, if I really feel like this is what needs to happen going forward, I'm gonna act that way. And if I really don't think that's what I'm supposed to do going forward, I'm not gonna act that way. And if it's something that I'm sitting and debating, that's not, that it's not real clear. So, so like, I'm not saying that every time we feel this is what needs to happen going forward, this is how I need to approach something, it's, it's the Holy Spirit. What I'm saying is if you did have the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't need to sit there and ask yourself, how do I know it's the Holy Spirit? You would feel like this is what you have to do going forward. So on that level, it's not really a question. Now, then you can ask the question from the outside person, how would it happen? If you're, if you're doing something, should I attribute to you any Ruach HaKodesh? And now I can do the same thing. I say, well, if what you're doing seems plausible in the context of being governed by God, does it really matter whether you arrived at it on your own or God just imbued it within you? Does it practically affect anything? In other words, let's say I have two people, two sages. One sage, righteous person, says something that is the product of his own experience. Now, this is a sagely person, a saintly person, right? And I'm not that wise, and I'm not that saintly. And I'm another person, and they're saying something, but what's, what's, what's guiding them to say it is the Holy Spirit, the Ruch HaKodesh, right? On a practical level, is there a reason for me to really differentiate one from the other? In both cases, I should probably take what they say quite seriously. And in both cases, right, it behooves me to be responsible and like not just blindly believe somebody in an implausible manner, right? So again there, it's like, it maybe adds a greater philosophical depth to what's going on, but it's not actually such a practical thing, which is why you really don't find it being like a, a thing. If you look in Jewish sources, like, oh, we have ascertained he has the Holy Spirit and now we must listen to it. Like, just like, that's not a thing. Now, prophecy in the higher order, that Nevoah thing, that has all mitzvah to listen to the prophet, and that we do have to discuss. That was the step two. But it's a way of appreciating that there's maybe more depth in, 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 when, when, someone is, when someone is trying to live a godly life, maybe they can end up knowing what to do and knowing what to say and knowing what needs to happen forward more than their human capacity should really allow them to. And maybe in the cases of extreme things like saving the Jewish people in the case of Shimshon where it almost becomes miraculous. And maybe just it occurring to someone that is really a bad idea for someone to be on a flight without really knowing why. And when you see that, but, but, but it, it's not like... It's not an authority issue. So for the person themselves, if they have it, they're gonna act on it anyway. And for the other, for the rest of us, it's not the thing that, it's not what gives the person a stamp of authority. So it doesn't have that kind of practical relevance. I need, oh, how do I know this is written with Ruach HaKodesh? How do I know this person said this with Ruach HaKodesh? Now, if I believe for whatever reason, it seems to me that there, there's more going on there, I might, place a little more weight than what they're saying, and fine. But you know what? In Jewish tradition, we kind of leave that up to you to make that judgment call. No, no one's going to ban you saying, oh, you're a heretic because you don't believe this. It's, just, it's not true. You know? And, 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 and it, it, it's a phenomenon which in our tradition we believe occurs. And if you reasonably think it's occurring, so maybe you'll give more weight to someone someone says. If it's not occurring, it doesn't mean what they're saying should be discounted. After all, there's wisdom and experience and intelligence behind, you know, and piety all behind what they're saying also. 
So I think if we like, take that step back, it, it, it kind of deflates the question. Yeah, now yeah. to answer your question, there's no way. There's no external test to know whether something is. But you're saying that Ruach HaKodesh is not the standard of authority. It doesn't come from like, it doesn't really, it's not relevant whether or not no. it's like legitimate or not because that's right. not the end of the we, we, we do. It's in alignment with right. what we can expect. Right, right. So we actually do the opposite a lot, which is when we see something that has clearly played a major role in our tradition, we retroactively ascribe to it Ruach HaKodesh. In other words, when we see that certain sages or the Jewish people as a whole or certain things happened, then we say it must have been that God was giving us the knowledge of how to act because we see that this has led us to the place that we are. So it's almost more of understood in a kind of an understanding of the past. Now again, you might say, I, I feel confident this person has that Ruch and within you know, the Torah, it's reasonable to follow them. This just means makes it, makes it even more reasonable. Okay, fine. You know, and people can, can, I think, agree to disagree about that without having to like, wave the banner of absolute truth on that. Um, and we see that just like that's the, the, you know, the, the way in our tradition it seems to get overall, broadly speaking, what I'm saying is not everybody would always agree with everything, but I think that, that would be more, more authentic. Now, in what we call intuition today? No. No. no, because we have a part of our mind which processes things because many times people have intuitions which are completely against what the Torah says. So clearly it can't be the same thing. Ruach HaKodesh never guide a person to against what God wants because it's knowledge of how to proceed according to God's intent. So an intuition doesn't always work that way. I don't know if there's a subjective difference in the experience though. You kind of get called an intuition placed there by God if you want to call it that. In terms of your experience, maybe not anything. In terms of the content, everything. Because intuition that's placed there by God will lead you to do exactly as God wants. Where intuition that's not that might, you know. No, no, I understand that. But intuition is placed by God versus your. I guess maybe you could say it's the same thing. Like it's it's like maybe that's just a way of saying the same thing. In other words, okay. I mean, it could take on other forms. I mean, in 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 it could it actually maybe could give the person abilities or 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 or. or whatever that they didn't normally have or something like that. It could be very extreme cases. Okay. In terms of the mitzvah to obey a prophet, which that's, that's with that higher level, which is where someone comes and says, I had this experience and God said to me to do X, Y, and Z, as the prophets say. For that, we make a very simple test. I'm not going to go through the, all the details of the test, but it's very simple. Number one, does this person sin? Sin. Violate God's will. Is this person sin in any respect? Do we have any knowledge of this person as somebody who always overcomes their evil inclination? Or do we know that this person, like most of us, sometimes gives in to their evil inclination? Right. In Tanya terminology, it's called a Bainani. In the Code of Jewish Laws, the Rambam codifies it, that he overcomes his inclination in all matters. Right, and his inclination never overcomes him. So, yeah, ask you a question. Is that, does it plausibly seem to us as a community that this person is complete control of your inclination in every respect? I, don't, I can't know for sure, but is that plausible? If it's not plausible, not a prophet. Step two, okay? Are they knowledgeable of Torah? Because if they're not knowledgeable in Torah, then in terms of the mitzvah of, of obeying a prophet, they, they, that's not the kind of prophet we're meant to obey. What? 
Um, because the understanding of prophecy is that what the prophet needs to do in order to gain prophecy is to live life as God wills it. And if the Torah is the guide to how to live life as God wills it, and, and a lack of knowledge of Torah, despite the person's good intent, can't actually mean... Right? It's like, if it, you can't be a surgeon if you don't know anything about anatomy. It's just kind of a... It's, it's like that. It's not an arbitrary thing. Um, and then the question is, do they know anything about Jewish understanding of metaphysics and spirituality? Because the way a prophet becomes a prophet is by moving their mind to focus on things beyond the material world. So if the person is just knowledgeable about how to keep Shabbos and how to keep kosher and Jewish financial and marriage law, but they're kind of ignorant about you know, philosophy and spirituality, then they're not a prophet. Because that's, what's in, that's, that's, the, that's where you have to move your mind. And then we can ask ourselves one other question, um, which is, are they a person which seems altogether mentally, and norm, mentally normal and sane? Because if the answer to that is no, then they are not a prophet. In other words, can they function like regular human beings in society when they're not having prophecies? If you have such a person, and they claim to be a prophet, then what we do in Judaism, we ask them to tell us something will happen in the future, and if they do that a few times, then we're required to accept that they're a prophet. Who is that on that? What? Who you want a list of names? Yeah. I, I want to say anyone ever did that to Shalatitzi. What? Anyone ever did that to Shalatitzi? Well, Shabbat violated Torah law, so it's like you don't have to go that far. So why did they not know in the nation think that? There was no YouTube. Well, I just remember, remember everything, anytime you ask about the ancient world, remember, or, the, or anything before the modern world, knowledge of what's going on somewhere else is easily distorted, right? Okay, so, well, you want a list of people? Um, there was a man named Shmuel, Samuel. There was a man named Zechariah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the only way around that is if someone's already known to be a prophet, takes you as his disciple, and then tells everyone he's also a prophet like me. Yes, 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 yes. There, there, there are seven, there are, we have a tradition of seven recorded by name, but there were more. Yes, there's seven recorded by name. Um, in our written Torah, we have seven prophets recorded by name, seven prophetesses, female prophets recorded by name, and if I think it's 44 male prophets. Our tradition says that during the time from Moshe until the destruction of the first temple, there was about 600,000 people who experienced prophecy. Not everybody who experienced prophecy means that it made it into the Tanakh, into the Bible. Okay. And is everyone who experiences prophecy considered a prophet, or do you do it multiple times? You, you, you a, you, they're considered a prophet. Now, just one caveat about this whole thing. We can be fooled, Right? But this is not, it could, it's not a foolproof system, okay? But like most areas in, in Jewish law, like if I go to the store, right, and I buy kosher food, and it says it's got the OU on it, or whatever else, right? And I buy it, and I eat it, and it could it theoretically still not be kosher? Yes. Yeah, that, that makes sense to everybody? I, I, now, did I sin or do anything wrong by eating that food? No. No. Because the Torah says there's rules for figuring out whether food is kosher. I follow the rules. And even if you follow the rules, it's theoretically possible that a mistake could occur. And so the Torah says, and this is codified also in Jewish law, it's possible someone could fool the whole community. But God says, these are the rules I want you to follow. If you follow those rules, you can, if, then 
you should trust that that person's a prophet as a matter of Jewish law. Now, has a prophet like this occurred and they've used their power to command Jewish people to do something um, since the end of the biblical hour? In other words, has there been a person who has gotten up and said, I am a prophet and God has sent me to command you to do X? Has that happened since the end of the biblical period? No. Are there people who have claimed to have experienced prophecy? Yes. Are there people that have told people that they should do things and people believe that they were inspired by Ruch Kodesh? Yes. But has anyone gotten up and said, I am a prophet and as a prophet, God has sent me to tell you, you must do X. And now we're all luckily required to do X. That has not happened for about 2,300 years or so. It doesn't mean it couldn't happen. It just means it hasn't. Okay? But that's, in terms of, so, so in, on a kind of practical level, if I'm not a prophet, barring that very interesting case where someone is claiming that they had that full-fledged, you know, went into a convulsion, their mind was flooded with this knowledge, and then they come and make a claim that I am, that God, what they got from that is that God sent them to tell me to do something. Barring that happening, if they claim that they had prophecy, maybe I believe them, maybe I don't. I don't have any, and it's up to me to think whether it's reasonable or not. It's only in that case where the Torah actually says we have to have a real standard because the question is whether I'm obligated to listen to them or not. And what I want you therefore to take away is that whether a person A is a prophet is actually less of an interesting question than we think it is. That's the kind of takeaway of this half of the class. Because barring that very specific case, right, where someone comes and says, I am a prophet and God commanded me to do this and we have to now go through the checklist, whether they are a prophet or not a prophet is, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't give them more, it doesn't, it doesn't give them credibility when they shouldn't have it. It doesn't take away from their credibility when they should. At best, it makes them maybe a little more credible to the people that believe them. You go to Tzfas, you meet someone in the street, they say, I just had a prophecy. Okay. You want to hear a funny story? Now, if they said, I, I had a prophecy and God sent me to tell you, actually, okay, wait, now I've got like, okay, I have my code of Jewish law, call the rabbi, is this kosher? Is not like, but up till that point, like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Like, wait, when I was in yeshiva, somebody came to yeshiva, he came and he changed his name twice. He was there for a week. He came, his name was Adam, normal name. Then he changed his name to Adam, which is like the Hebrew version of Adam, so that's okay. By the end of the week, he decided he should be called Adama, ground, because that's the root of the word Adam. Um, so there you go. Anyway, there was a Febrengen, and he got up at the Febrengen, and he said, gets up very seriously, says, I can no longer deny my experiences. Okay. I can no longer deny my experiences. It was very intense. I have been to the world of Yitzira. Yitzira is a spiritual world in the Kabbalistic arrangement of worlds. That's basically a claim to have experienced like some kind of a prophecy. Okay. So, like everybody's like, okay, this guy's nuts. But one of the guys, one of the guys in the yeshiva, um, I was friendly with him at the time. It's been a long time since we spoke. So he turns around, like, not in all seriousness, but with a pretend, like, 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 okay. So, so what was it like? I mean, maybe, why not? Could be. Like, doesn't hurt me to ask, right? And he says, it was pink with bubbles. 
You understand? Like, 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 it's not like it was going to change my life based on what he said before he claims prophecy. And that's the kind of thing. If the person doesn't have credibility before they claim to be a prophet, they don't all of a sudden gain credibility because they claim to be a prophet. So it's, it's less of a stake. Now, what is an important issue is what does it mean about reality that prophecy exists? That's where the real depth of the matter is. Because what does it mean that people can be prophets? Whether this particular man or woman is or isn't a prophet, you know, if, if they're not credible as a person beforehand, doesn't make them credible. And if they are credible, so barring the very specific halacha case where I'm required to obey them, uh, you know, if you, if you find a believable, you find a believable. If you don't find a believable, don't find a believable. It's up to you. Like, you know, okay. And if you do, like, have a question, if they ask you to do something, you have a question about whether you listen to them or not. You know, they would, no. Yeah. But it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be asking. It has to be that they come and say, like, you see the way the prophets write. So saith the Lord! That kind of thing. When they start talking like that, we call the rabbi, we open up the code of Jewish law, and we check. Until then... Use your judgment. You think they're prophetic? Fine. You don't think they're prophetic? Fine. But if they have no plausibility before the claim of prophecy, they don't seem wise. They don't seem saintly. They don't seem knowledgeable. They don't seem honest. Like, then, 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 then the claim of prophecy shouldn't give them any credibility to be... Okay? And the same thing with Ruch HaGodosh, right? In that sense, it's, it's, it's not as high of a stakes as a thing. What does it mean, though, that prophecy exists? That's what I want for the, that last part of, of this question. What does it mean about reality that people can be prophets? Whether it's that lower level of Ruch HaKodesh, it's that higher level which we call Nevua proper. What does, that, what does that do about our awareness of reality? I'm not a prophet. Maybe I don't even counter a prophet. But what does that mean about life? I don't want to venture a guess. Yeah. But there's some, some capacity for communication between God and humans. That's right. There's capacity for communication between God and humans. So I want you to think of it like this. What was the big takeaway from yesterday's class about God? What is God? Right. And therefore, a big takeaway is that there's this, there's this sense of this distance between us and God, right? What's the counterbalance against the idea from yesterday's class? It's prophecy. As distant as God is, there's also a sense in which he is very, very close. How close could he be? He could, in some sense, take over your very mind. He could fuse his, some truth of him with you. So, what would it be the case if we believed in a God but we didn't believe in prophecy? Which, by the way, is not, I mean, I'd say in the modern world it's not as common, but there were, there were, Definitely, people and philosophers and things who believed in not believed in God and didn't believe in prophecy. What would that do about the about what would that mean? Not necessarily. If there's if a person believes in God but doesn't believe in prophecy, what would that mean? And, and the, what's the consequence of that and how I approach my life? Less of a relationship. So there's a less of a relationship, right? There's, there's, a, there's a less of a closeness to God, right? It also means, it also means that, I wanna go back to that first thing I said about prophecy. I said what, what every prophet gets, even on that lowest level, is a sense of, of how to proceed in life, right? 
what's the, you know, not, not a what in the sense of an idea, but what am I supposed to do? What am I not supposed to do? How am I supposed to approach the situation? If there's no prophecy, then what that means is that no matter how much a person ever is convinced that this is the right thing to do, does, could, could that ever be used to say that that's really what we're supposed to do? If there's no prophecy, that means that you're being convinced that this is what we should do going forward is the product of what? Of, no. It's a product of, go back to our knowledge. It's a product of what you yourself have seen, what makes sense to your intellect, what you believe that other people have told you, and the specifics of the culture that you were raised in. Does that sound like a solid basis to know for sure what the right thing to do is? It's as solid as it gets if you don't think prophecy That's right. It's as solid as it gets. You can't, you can't do any better. But the minute you admit that prophecy can exist, that means that there is, a, there is, there is in reality the possibility of someone genuinely knowing what the right thing to do is in an absolute way. Now, if that's true... What I want to do is I want to I want to use the idea of a scale, okay? How much weight should I give to my own personal experience? A lot, a little. Well, the answer is that that's kind of a meaningless question because as opposed to what, right? So for instance, I'm going to a magic show and I see the magician on the stage and they pull a, they, they, they cut the woman in half, yeah? So I've seen it, he cut her in half! Murderer! Should I, should I, should I, should I trust my experience there? Not context. Not context. Maybe I should give more weight to my reason, right? So there's a question, how much weight should I give to my reason? How much weight should I give to my experience, right? On the other end, if I you know, sit in my ivory tower and philosophize about something and don't go out into the world and check, I might come to weird conclusions like heavier things fall faster. Do heavier things fall faster? No, they don't. They don't. You, try it. So maybe in that case, I should like not give as much weight to my reason and give more weight to like my empirical senses, right? No. A feather falls slower. So you can tell the following: you can take the feather, crumple it up. So it's just a tiny ball, and then you drop it together with a big weight, and you'll see they fall just the same. Or you can do it in a vacuum, and there's no. What, so the more you go out of the world and experience, you start to realize that it's not having to do with weight; it has to do with density and air and air resistance and all these other things. But the only way you would know that is if you stop thinking what makes sense to me and go out in the world and check, right? So like, there's a question, and this is always a question in the philosophy of knowledge called uh, epistemology. How much weight do I give to what I experience and how much weight do I give to my reason? Okay? That's an interesting question. Let's set that question aside. What about if I add my third way of knowing, which is, what's my third way of knowing things? What? Indirect knowledge, what, the indirect knowledge I gained from other people, right? So how much, like right now, do you now know that heavier things don't fall faster? You do, but how? Not reason, you didn't reason it through. That's right. Now should you discount your reason based on what I just said or not? That's an interesting question, right? 
So now it becomes an interesting thing, right? Now I have three things. What takes precedent over what, right? Then we have cultural knowledge, okay? I'm going to give you an example of cultural knowledge. This is the Rambam's example, but it's a very good example. It illustrates the point. Um, I think most of us would think that there's something wrong about siblings getting married, yes? And yet most people, if you try to ask them what's wrong about it, and especially if you don't resort to God said it's wrong, they're left off with some says, it just seems really, really wrong. And that's not reasoned out. There's nothing out in the world. You, can, you can't go out in the world and check the wrongness of it. And yet people have a very strong sense around these examples. There's something about the way our societies work, which are cultures, the sense that there's something wrong about that. Now, here's the thing. You take all those different kinds of knowledge, right? We can ask what should take precedence over what, right? And do those have simple answers? No. No. What I want to do is I want to take all those knowledges and put them all together on one side. Should I, however I figure out how to work out that mess, how much credibility should I give that? And the answer is, well, I mean, all the credibility because I don't have any other, there's nothing else I can do, right? There's nothing else, there's no other way to know anything. But what if in my worldview I realize that there's also prophecy? I realize that prophecy exists, that's it. It's, the phenomenon exists. I haven't met a prophet, I've never counted prophecy, but, the prophet, but it exists. Then what? 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 No, but if, 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 if prophecy is a phenomenon exists, then what does that mean? It means all my ways of knowing as, as, as reliable as they are, I think we all understand that my senses are limited and flawed, right? My intelligence is limited and flawed. My ability to determine whether someone is trustworthy or not is limited and Right? My culture is probably in some senses limited and flawed, right? So if I, no matter how I work that all out, my sense of what the right thing moving forward will always be limited and. And if I know that prophecy exists, what does that mean exists out there in reality somewhere? There's an absolute truth. There's an absolute truth of how to proceed. And if I could find that, how much credibility should I give that as opposed to all these other ways of knowing See what that does? It, it, in other words, it, it, the same way, like when I, when I ask you about the, the, the magic trick, right? Also, well, I mean, you shouldn't trust your senses. You trust your reason, right? Your reason is more reliable here, right? Well, once we admit as part of our worldview that prophecy exists, what does that do to all of our other ways of knowing? It, all, it makes them all of a sudden... Nothing. Not nothing. It makes them a second best option. Now, maybe I don't have access to a prophet, so I have to rely on them, right? But it makes them a second best option. And so what that does to a person, and this is actually a very important thing for a person to realize, is that if a person takes the phenomenon of prophecy seriously, that it exists in the world, and that means that that kind of communication from the absolute why of everything, how everything fits together, somehow does actually reach a person's mind in some way, shape, or form, or a person's sense of how to proceed forward. If that phenomenon occurs, if possible, where should I get my answers as to how to proceed in life? From, from that or from my own experiences, my own reason, what other people tell me, 
long question and the second question. But like, you go to rabbis and they give you a blessing and they say like, no, this blessing is not, cannot be given to you. You know, sometimes like people ask yeah. rabbis something or like, mm-hmm. like we ask for that, that yeah. we, like we yeah. ask for something and the yeah. rabbi is like, no, it's not for you. Is that also somewhat of a nibble? It is, right? It's more of a Ruch HaKodesh kind of thing, but yeah. So that's not Well, not the Rebbe's having a lot kind of experience there. Is there no way that it comes in like small doses? Look, there's... the rabbi that you, you just go asking to him to be connected to know your, your channels and your... That right, but that's, but that's... But that's like... That's, it's not prophecy like go... Right, so yeah, that, it's that lower level that I spoke about, the Holy so Spirit type of thing. what you're saying is like if it's... That is the highest Right. Right. But I, I want to avoid the rabbi thing down. because I, I really want to. It's not about the rabbi. This is like where it gets yeah. messed up. But it's, if you know that it does exist, okay. If you know it exists, okay. And like I'm a rabbi, and I can tell you, as a rabbi, people put way too much trust in rabbis. Okay. Just, this is a very important thing. Rabbis are not like the people. They're not more than people. They're not less than people. They have certain types of knowledge, experiences, and training, but that's it. What I'm asking is about, forget the rabbi. If that kind of knowledge is available out there somewhere. Exactly. What's that? That's it. That's what you. No, no, no. You added a very important word, which is? Now. Maybe there were prophets. Before the books, before the books, okay? I had a friend in Yeshiva many, many years ago. And he grew up and he had a very strong sense of God. Okay, lots of people have a strong sense of God. He actually had a, and this is not as common, he had a strong sense of prophecy. No, no. Not, he had a strong sense that he's a prophet. Not a strong sense that someone else is a prophet. He had a strong sense that there is prophet. Like this idea, God, the the ultimate why, God, communicates what we should be doing. There is an answer. There is a real answer to, maybe not in every specific thing, but but it's not just that there's God and we have to now kind of figure it out using our own reason and our own experience and trusting other people and our own cult. Like there's, he, as a child growing up, he had this very strong sense that there's prophecy. There's prophecy. Okay. So now the question is, where? where? Now he grew up Jewish, not in an Orthodox community. And so it was very clear to him is that Judaism is not an expression of prophecy because he went and asked the rabbi of the community And the rabbi of the community was hemming and hawing about whether God exists. Now, if he's hemming and hawing about whether God exists, whatever this religion and culture is, this is not not rooted in prophetic knowledge because that doesn't make any sense, right? So what did he do? He went to other nations. That's right. And he became a Christian. And he now is a Jew. He's always Jewish. No, but now he came back. One second, one second. He became Christian. I'm so excited. One second, one second. Listen to it. He became Christian. Why did he become Christian? Because that was the first group of people who said with all sincerity, yes, yes, there's prophecy. Like, but they couldn't show it. Wait, 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 wait. I want, I want, I know, but I, the thing I want you guys to take away from this is that this notion that there's prophecy about changing our approach to life, not about the figuring out part. Is this, is this prophetic or not? Like, but I guess when you find the approach, you can apply it. Oh, 
So then what happens is like this. It's not my job to teach you about Christianity, but there are different streams in Christianity. So there's a particular stream in Christianity called Catholicism. And Catholicism is very heavy on the idea that like God has revealed a certain truth about how people are supposed to live and it's like very set. And there's other streams of Christianity which believe that they can, you know, update what God wants based on whatever's going on in the times. And so as he started getting more involved in Christianity, he's like, eh, these other streams, they're not so prophetic. It's like, whatever like seems moral to them is retroactive of what God wants. Mm, I don't know, eh, doesn't sound prophetic to me. You know, it's like, if, I, if my own moral intuitions say that it's correct, and then retroactive must mean that's what God wants, that's just me using God as, like a, as a stamp of approval for my own intuitions. But then he discovered Catholicism and he became a very devout Catholic. And at that point, his parents freaked out. <laughs> and they got an organization called Jews for Judaism involved, and, um, which is an Orthodox organization. And when he started to become more exposed to Orthodox Judaism, his experience was, oh, this is what I was looking for. Now, the details of the story are not really relevant, like what made him more convinced about Judaism than, than, than Catholicism. That's not the point I want to get at. The point I want to get at is, if prophecy is a phenomenon, that means that as a human being, it is possible to know what the right thing to do is in an ultimate sense. That possibility exists. Now, does that mean everybody always gets that knowledge? Does it mean everybody always discovers that? No, it doesn't mean that. But that means that it exists out there in reality. So if I take doing the right thing seriously in my life, and that's part of my worldview, it creates a drive in the person to seek out that revelation. You understand what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's like, in other words, there's, 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 a, there's a way in which a person can live their life where they're saying like, okay, maybe there's God, maybe he gave the Torah, kind of convince me, prove it to me. There's an entirely different kind of a mindset where a person has a sense there is an ultimate answer, even though if I, know, I, I, I know that I'll never know what it is or whatever it is. And there's also a sense that that ultimate answer does guide people in some very real way. The Ruch HaKodesh, the Nevoah, these two different levels of prophecy. And if they have a sense that that exists in the world, that creates in them a drive and a sense of an obligation to find out where this where I can get access to that kind of guidance, that kind of truth. And now it's a question of, and I'll give you just an example. If you are sick and you know there's something called medicine in the world, right? You know there's something called doctors in the world, right? What do you do? You're sick and you know that, 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 that there's medical knowledge in the world. What do you do? You seek it out. You seek it out. Could you make the wrong decision and, 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 and trust the wrong doctor? You could. But that doesn't mean, oh, well, I guess the whole medicine thing's a sham, right? You say, well, I, I was wrong. I, I misjudged or was on a mistake or I was taken advantage of or, or they, the, whatever it was, right? But the person keeps searching because, because the doctor is not imposing something into their worldview. The doctor is answering a calling they have themselves. And one of the reasons why understanding prophecy is so important because if a person understands prophecy for themselves, and they see that as a real part of reality, it creates in them, they start looking for truth in a religious sense. And the opposite, unfortunately, is also true. If I don't really believe in prophecy, then what I'm looking for is not religious truth. 
I might find what I'm looking for in religion. Like I might be looking for a sense of stability in my life, and I find it in religion. I might be looking for a sense of community, and I find it in religion. What, what glues the person to religion is not God. It's prophecy. That, that, that something about the ultimate why does reach, at least in terms of guidance, at least in terms of what to do, does reach a person, even if it hasn't reached me, and I, knowing that that's out there, knowing that I'm lacking it, drives the person to find it. And maybe they make the wrong choice along the way. Maybe they get misled. Maybe they find the ultimate truth. And if a person doesn't have that, then the whole, rela- the whole relationship of, 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 of religion, in our case of doing Torah and doing mitzvahs, it ends up starting to require external scaffolding. How is this going to help with this? How is it going to meet this need? How is it going to meet that need? For instance, like someone will ask, like, how is keeping Shabbos going to help my, my, uh, my marriage? Or how is keeping kosher going to help my um, health? Right? Or how is, how is putting on tefillin going to enhance my spiritual experiences? Because we, as humans, we have a desire for spiritual experiences. And it's not that those things can't do those things, and maybe they do do those things. But that's very different than the person who's saying, like, I, there, is a right, there is a way I should live. And most of the time I have to rely on those four methods of knowing and I do the best that I can. But I know out there there is some ultimate answer and I'm looking for that. And if I don't have that, I feel like I'm missing something. And then they relate to something like Torah and mitzvahs as an answer to, as something, as something responding to their need. This is, I think, a very important thing that we often overlook. If a person takes the phenomenon of prophecy seriously and comes to a place in themselves where, they, where not just I take it seriously as, as, a, as an idea, I take it seriously as this is really part of reality, it changes how they relate to why to keep term answers. I ask in the morning, like, why should I put on tefillin? I give morning to put on tefillin. Well, it's a very different thing if I say God said so or I say... I know for myself there, is, there, is, there are things that I absolutely correct in what I must do. And for whatever reason, I'm convinced that tefillin is one of those things. That means that tefillin is something that resonates with me. Shabbos candles, going to mikvah. For a person's sense, this is, this, is, this is to the best of my understanding, to the place I'm convinced, this is the answer to the question of what I need to do going forward. That's very different than thinking of how can this help me or some authority figure imposed it upon me and now I'm stuck. Now I'm not saying a person can't keep to our mitzvahs with these other mindsets, but this is one of the reasons why all of the Jewish thinkers make such a big deal about prophecy, even though like from a halachic point of view, being a prophet is like a very like small tangential area of Jewish law, which has almost no practical significance. It, it does. I'm not saying it has none, but, it, but, it's, but it's very limited. Because it's the phenomenon that it occurs. And if you actually look at the way the Rambam Maimonides lists his principles of faith and he speaks about prophecy, he speaks about it as you should know the phenomenon exists. That's the way he writes it. Rather than knowing that so-and-so is a prophet. The way the Rambam Maimonides describes the principle of faith of prophecy is knowing that prophecy exists. Not, not, not that this particular person was a prophet. That's a separate principle. He actually makes them two totally separate. He has 13 principles of Judaism 
And he makes Moshe's prophecy a totally separate principle, which is, which is telling what he thinks about that. And so, let's just summarize what, what, we've, what we've learned, right? What is the experience of prophecy? And the answer to that is, I have no idea. But one of the aspects of every prophetic encounter with God is a sense of how to proceed going forward. How should I live going forward regarding something? And a higher level prophecy called nevuah proper is where the mind of the person is actually flooded with an awareness of a truth. And such a person may actually have authority to tell you what to do. And there's rules for figuring out whether that's the case. But in any real life scenario, the claim to prophecy or higher level, lower level rests on the fact that that person has a claim to being a, 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 a trustworthy in these kinds of matters even without the prophecy. Right? That they're you know, knowledgeable and wise and God-fearing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so, and again, that halachic space is very narrow. On the other hand, the fact that you know that, that that kind of knowledge exists in the world means that I should feel that I should, if I take that decision, feel the yearning to find that and to get that if possible. And maybe I can't find a prophet. I'm handing to find someone with Ruch HaKodesh. But if I can find at least a tradition that is rooted in prophecy, that resonates with me as being authentic and true, that gives it a kind of a weight and a seriousness and a personal relevance that you can't get in Judaism if you, if you try and support it with these kinds of other things. Now, what I'm telling you is not, oh, this, is this something you have to do? What I'm telling you is that it totally changes the way we experience Judaism when we have absorbed in ourselves this idea of prophecy. We experience Judaism, like I said, not as God imposing on us. We don't experience Judaism as a means to something else. We start to experience the Judaism as having some intrinsic value that we're trying to live up to and fully appreciate. And that's really more reflective of how the throughout history, Jewish thinkers have thought about how to relate to Judaism. What do people teach like in schools, like the basic halakha of A, B, and C, and not this idea of because children are children. Um, I I I I've long since given up trying to explain why everybody does everything. No, I know, but is this like I'm a, I, I, I perspective of just like a, a like a Hasidic perspective or this is, is a, this is illuminated by Hasidus, but everything I have said, a detail here, a detail there, not everyone would agree with, but the theme that I've said is pretty much universally agreed upon from all types of thinkers, rationalists, Kabbalists, this type of thing. And, and I, I think, I mean, if you go back to my mention yesterday about the Kuzari, remember that story about the Kuzari? The beginning of the Kuzari is that where the person says, like, I know God wants me to live in a certain way. That knowledge is out there. How do I find it? Right? That's the whole story beginning of the Kuzari. That's not a Hasidic book. Um, the Rambam's writings are like this. The Kabbalist's writings are like this. Again, there's many. I, I've avoided all the contentious issues in prophecy because there's a lot of debates in Judaism about prophecy. And I'm not going to say every word that I said is undisputed, but the overall broadness of the theme is, is yeah. And, and, you know, when a person knows that, they feel a calling, like, not... I feel a calling because God has called me. I feel a calling like I need to go find where that truth is. Um, and again, a person can make a mistake in that journey. People have, and that's discussed in the Zohar about, you know, um, 
I, I'm a parent also. So my oldest child is bar mitzvah, and my youngest child is two. So I can, uh, my oldest child is a little bit, he's, 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 he's mature beyond his years, so it's a little bit different. But even him, children are, children are not adults. Children have to be related to his children. There's a, there's a simplicity and a rigidity to children's minds that doesn't exist to adults. And one thing that, for whatever reason, doesn't really matter how it came about, um, at least Judaism in its modern incarnation does a very bad job of educating about Judaism past the age of puberty. We just, for whatever reason, I'm not saying it's always this way, but definitely in the, there's something off about like how once people start passing puberty of like, and they become themselves internally more complex, giving them the, the way to deal with that without overwhelming them, because you can overwhelm them, first, right? And, not, and, and I, don't, I don't teach that age. I don't know how to do that in a classroom setting with my own children. Like I said, my oldest is 13. So what's that going to look going forward? I don't know. But I'm teaching adults, which is a little bit easier. And with adults, there's a kind of, there's something already there to some degree, and you can work with that. But if you look in, 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 in except all sorts of different sources and different ranges and different slight takes on this, you see the sense that the ultimate truth, the ultimate answer, even though we don't know what it is, does guide people in a very real, concrete way that is out there in reality somewhere. Maybe it's at a specific time, at a specific place that occurred, the giving of the Torah Mount Sinai. Maybe it's in a particular individual about, you know, like the prophet Shmuel or Yechezkel or something. Maybe it exists in some more accessible way in like the Ruach HaKodesh of like, a, you know, a Hasidic Rebbe. But whether or not a particular example of it is, the, is correct or incorrect, the fact that it's there gives me an imperative to, to seek out a guidance to my life which is beyond just the product of my own experiences, my own intelligence, what other people have told me, and culture, but to look for something deeper. And yeah, it's a struggle to like, there are people who went to go follow somebody and they end up with disillusioned. I mean, there's a, there's, there's a story, I don't go into the details, I don't have time. There was a, there was a Hasidic Rebbe um, named the Kotzke Rebbe and he, some of his disciples left him. They felt that what he has does not answer our questions. And they left. They broke away. But that can only work when the person knows that, that that's out there somewhere. Now, how do we understand that? How mystical we want to make it? Like, again, that's, that's, there's a lot of different versions of this. Yes? How are you supposed to know that you're going in even semi the right direction? Like, what if... Like, what if you're just completely, like, because Judaism is one way to get to, like, ultimate truth. Other people believe in ultimate truth, but they get there in a different way. And prophecy is not the only way of coming to the conclusion that there's some ultimate truth out there. Like, well, prophecy was the idea that there's ultimate truth out there. Right. But, but I'm saying, so, even going so the Jewish perspective on this is very simple is that God did not want to be ambiguous, so he decided to set the ground rules by doing it um, en masse in public rather than as individuals. So the Rambam discusses that as Jews, we use the Torah as a guidance to figure out who is a prophet, who's not a prophet, um, because there's always, there is no answer to the question about an individual person's experience of revelation of prophecy. There's, there's never a way to authenticate that uncontroverted. There's no way of authenticating that beyond a reasonable doubt. And so the idea is that, in Judaism, the idea is that 
the person has a tradition of something which is on a societal level. You know, communal revelation, if you want to call it. Communal prophecy. Um, now, right, now does, that, does that answer the skeptic? It does not answer the skeptic. But does that give the, the person who's afraid of not having guardrails, guardrails to work with? It does. And I think it's important to make that distinction. Right? If I'm skeptical, nothing ever pushes someone outside of their skepticism. Skepticism is something you can, you can continually reinforce. But if you're asking the question the other way, right? There's so many ways out there. How am I supposed to know? I'm saying, well, if I've party to this kind of thing and it has a, a kind of a depth to its plausibility because it's, it's something of a society saying we experience this as a society on the level of a society, well, that gives it a kind of weight to it and a kind of authenticity to it that can help the person say, okay, I'm going to put all my efforts in continuing on this path because this path seems to be broad and safe. It's not a thin, narrow bridge. But at the end of the day, you know, people make choices, right? You can ask the same question about getting married, right? You can marry someone, does this look like a good idea to marry this person? And, you know, it looks like a good idea. It's, I can't see any flaws with it. Is it theoretically I could be wrong, but I, this, this is the only way I can go forward. In other words, we don't, prophecy doesn't remove the fact that we're still flawed human beings and have to make decisions, right? And the communal revelation of Mount Sinai just makes that maybe a little bit easier because it makes this path have more credibility than that path maybe. But that's it. And um, yeah. And by the way, different Jewish sages have different views on how much tolerance we should have for a person's wrong decisions on that path. Some are very more open-minded of that an honest mistake should not be treated so badly and some are more rigid and that's also you know, a whole discussion in its own right. Last question that I really have to run. You're free to go after this if someone does religion in the way of like, if does this benefit me, the shaman's candles, the tefillin, blah, 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 it's so not genuine relation to God, right? So does that mean that they're actually not doing mitzvah? Like they're not doing it with like, because isn't a mitzvah like the action itself, but also the, the, the connection part? So the simple answer to this is I am not God and I am not a prophet. So I do not speak on behalf of what God values and doesn't value. What I can tell you is that we have a code of Jewish law. And the code of Jewish law dictates what are the terms for mitzvah fulfillment or not. And I would look at a particular case and say, according to Jewish law, they fulfilled the mitzvah. In which case, whatever, is it a, whatever about a mitzvah is essential connecting you to God because you did a mitzvah has occurred. And whatever part of the mitzvah depends on your attitude probably has not occurred. That's how to do. Now, how does God feel about it? I don't. I don't speak on God's behalf. I don't. I don't know. He hasn't told me. I mean, I'd if like you to know. Yeah. Well, I mean, in general, there's a separate question about this idea of doing mitzvahs because you want something in return. Right. And that's for next class. Is that a, is that a, yeah. is that really a good idea or not? All right. I'll see you tomorrow.